Anger, seeing goddess, the anger of Achilles, son of Peleus, that accursed anger, which brought the Greeks endless sufferings and sent the mighty souls of many warriors to Hades, leaving their bodies as carrion for the dogs and a feast for the birds. And Zeus's purpose was fulfilled. It all began when Agamemnon, lord of men and godlike Achilles, quarrelled and parted. These are the opening lines that the poet Homer sang in his epic poem, The Iliad, which depicts ten days of the closing stages of the Trojan War. Other tales about the war had existed in ancient times, but only survived today in fragmentary forms, or with other ancient authors alluding to. Many scenes can also be found on Greek pottery, also attesting to the widespread knowledge of the war in ancient times. The war began with Helen, the face that set sail to a thousand ships, accompanying Paris, a Trojan prince, back to Troy, although she was the wife of Menelaus, a Spartan king. The Greeks formed a coalition under the command of Agamemnon, the brother of Menelaus and king of Mycenae. The Greek force sailed across the Aegean and waged a war upon the Trojans, not before Agamemnon committed the unthinkable act of sacrificing his own daughter for favourable winds, an act he would pay for his life after the war had ended. The war raged on for ten years without the walls of Troy being breached, where Homer then begins his poem. The Greeks had laid waste to much of the surrounding countryside, raiding the villages around Troy, taking plunder and women. A great dishonour occurs when a woman the hero Achilles has taken possession of is taken off of him by King Agamemnon. Achilles threatens to withdraw his men from the war and doesn't take part in the coming battles, showing the fragile nature of Agamemnon's coalition. The war continues with the Greek warriors riding into battle in chariots, seeking out worthy opponents to fight in single combat, with the warriors seeking out Kleos, a term roughly translating to immortal glory, to be remembered through the ages. The Greeks and then the Trojans break into each other's camps, showing how the battle hangs in the balance. Agamemnon, Ajax and Odysseus have all attempted to gain the return of Achilles and his men to help tip the tide in the Greeks' favour. Achilles is brought back into the fray due to a desire for revenge after his closest friend Patroclus, failing to listen to his warnings, is killed by the Trojan prince Hector. The war reaches its climax with a huge battle taking place that shakes the earth. Achilles is at the head of the Greeks, cutting down every Trojan he encounters in his rage. Achilles receives his revenge when he cuts down Hector in single combat and ties him to his chariot and circles around the walls of Troy. The Trojans are able to recover the body of Hector and Achilles then agrees to a 12-day truce where Hector's funeral can take place. The Greeks in Homer's Iliad are that of the civilization we now call the Mycenaeans. Many of the heroes and events depicted in the Iliad were considered to be a historical fact by the ancient Greeks. Though with the passage of time, the tale has taken up a place in myth for most. Though in modern times, with the onset of archaeology as a profession, the past has been dug up and has been given newfound life to aspects of the Homeric poems. Hello, I'm Mark Selleck, and welcome back to Casting Through Ancient Greece, Episode 4, The Mycenaeans. In this episode, we are going to look at our second Bronze Age civilization, the Mycenaeans. They were the first civilization to develop on the Greek mainland, and as we will discuss, the first civilization where we can trace a Greek identity, while also finding traces of other civilizations' influences. We will have a look back at where the Mycenaeans came from and how they came to inhabit the Greek mainland. We will look at the different eras of the Mycenaean civilization, which are classified by the burial styles used, and then see what surrounded their decline. The Mycenaeans lived in and around palaces in what we could describe as principalities, 
and we will look at what legend and archaeology tells us about them. We will see the Mycenaeans' involvement in trade and their contact with other civilizations, where evidence can be found in archives kept by these civilizations. We will then look at the cultural aspects of the Mycenaeans, their language, religion, and how they lived. So who were these people, and where did they come from? The legends and archaeological record agree somewhat on the outline of how the final movements of people led to the creation of the Mycenaean civilization. As we have seen from our past episodes dealing with the Greek prehistory, the settlement and population in the Greek mainland increased significantly around the beginning of the Bronze Age. There appears to be a new group of people and ideas who were located in the southern Balkans that started to trickle down into Greece. These people and ideas also appear to be part of the Indo-European migrations that had been occurring for centuries beforehand. As the movements from the Balkans into Greece occurred, there were signs of various contacts between different regions, with more sites over time showing a change in items and methods. What has been uncovered is the gradual appearance in more and more Greek regions of weapons, pottery styles and burial styles that appear to have originated with these southern Balkan people. It is also worthwhile to note that another area where the closest parallels can be drawn with the materials that these people brought with them was in Anatolia, modern-day Turkey. Another significant discovery is that of a new language that started to appear around this time that was an old form of ancient Greek that also has roots in the Indo-European language family. Evidence has also been uncovered that shows a wave of destruction occurring somewhere around 2300 BC at many sites across Greece. We also hear from ancient Greek writers, writing some thousand years later, giving traditional accounts pointed to multiple groups in Greece. The historian Herodotus recounts the story of Croesus, the king of Lydia, consulting the Delphic Oracle on who was the stronger of the Greeks. Herodotus says when talking of the two Greek peoples, the Ionians and Dorians, these two, one originally Pelasgian, the other Hellenic, were the most powerful of the Greek peoples. The Ionians are an indigenous race, but the Dorians, on the contrary, have been constantly on the move. Herodotus then continues on talking of the Dorians' southward movements in Greece before settling on the Peloponnese. In the same account, he turns to a language relating to how the Pelasgians, the indigenous race, didn't speak Greek, and then announces, one may conclude that the Athenians, being themselves Pelasgians, changed their language when they were absorbed into the Greek family of nations. Another historian named Thucydides also relates about a time before the Greeks described their land as Hellas. Before the time of Helen, son of Deucalion, no such name existed, but the country went by the names of the different tribes, in particular of the Pelasgian. It doesn't seem likely that a large invasion took place that supplanted a new civilization but waves of movements of people and ideas filtering down from the Balkans over hundreds of years, which would gradually take hold in areas and eventually come into conflict with others. This appears to be what we are seeing with this period that encompasses these waves of destructions around 2300 BC. There are signs that the level of progression seen at the beginning of the Bronze Age stagnated for some centuries before around the Middle Bronze Age, where prosperity returned seeing the Mycenaeans beginning to flourish. The Mycenaean era fits into a period known as the Late Helladic Period, roughly 1600 to 1100 BC. The Helladic Period dating is what is used to describe the different periods in the Bronze Age on the Greek mainland. It follows roughly the same pattern as what Arthur Evans had used to categorise the periods in Minoan civilization. The periods also break down into sub-periods, for example, Late Helladic I, Late Helladic II, and Late Helladic III. Further subdivisions can also be made, but we will stick with this for now. 
Hellenic was used to describe the mainland's Bronze Age period, as it was taken from the name the Greeks called their homeland, Hellas. The periods we described above are generally arrived at through the dating of pottery styles that have been reconciled against civilizations that a chronology has already been arrived at, such as Egypt and areas of Mesopotamia. Within the Mycenaean period itself, errors can also be arrived at through the burial practices and events. These are known as the Shaft Grave Era, the Coin Era, and the Collapse. Most of the information that has been gathered to describe what we know of the Mycenaeans and what took place in these periods has been gathered through four main areas. These areas include legends, such as those that were read in Homer's Iliad and the Odyssey, archaeology, where ruins, grave sites, and pottery are uncovered, archives such as the tablets of Linear B that have been uncovered on the Greek mainland, and lastly foreign archives, which talk of interactions from the perspective of another civilization. The records from the civilization of the Hittites in Anatolia are our richest source of these. So let's take a look at what these Mycenaean errors were and what was taking place. The era known as the Shaft Grave Era was given its name from the types of burials that were found in Mycenae, which were some of the wealthiest of the period. This is the area that the grave circles that Heinrich Schliemann uncovered belonged to, although dated some few centuries before his beloved Agamemnon. The period is normally given the dates of 1600 to 1450 BC, which roughly lines up with the late Hellenic 1 and 2 chronology. For this period, much of what we know mainly comes from the burials themselves, leaving us much in the dark on a great deal of the period. A shaft grave is a rectangular area cut out of the rock deep down with a shaft entrance leading to it from above. The grave or tomb area could be lined with stones, timber, sticks or large slabs of stone. Once the grave was ready to be sealed, the shaft would be filled in with dirt and the grave would then normally be marked with an outline of stones. The beginning of the shaft grave area saw an increase in population, settlements and centres of power. The burials show that the elites in the period had a great deal of wealth and an importance was placed on seeing that they were laid to rest fitting their status. In Mycenae, these were the graves that had the warriors buried with their weapons, dressed in armour and wearing golden face masks. The women had golden ornaments and jewellery accompanying them, while the two children in the graves were covered head to toe in sheet gold. Other items deemed to be valuable possessions and items of religious importance also accompanied them. Other tombs that had been uncovered across Greece that date to this time frame suggest that the areas differed in wealth and were progressing at different rates, though the items that could be found in the graves were very similar site to site and the styles similar to the items at Mycenae. This suggests that the different power centres would have been in contact, most likely in trade. It also shows a common value system and perhaps a common religious system, since most systems are tied in with the burial of the dead. Towards the end of the shaft grave era, a new type of tomb could start to be seen across Greece. These were known as the Thalos tombs and chamber tombs. These new types of tombs would become a popular way of burial in this new era, the coin or common era. These tombs usually had a long narrow entrance which led to a chamber for burial cut from the rock. These tombs would be cut into the side of a hill or dug into level ground and would vary in size from tomb to tomb. The tombs were designed for multiple burials and could have another one or two chambers leading off the main one. The tombs were very visible and most had been robbed and damaged well before modern archaeology could have studied them. This is the era where the Mycenaeans became much more influential in Greece, the Aegean and Anatolia. It has been thought that their rise of influence coincided with the decline of the Minoan influence in the Aegean and after the eruption of Thera, as we discussed in our last episode. 
Evidence shows that the Mycenaeans were in control on Crete and many other islands in the Aegean as far as Rhodes, which for probably the first time shows a common shared culture and civilization spreading over the Greek mainland and across the Aegean, hence the period being known as the Common Era. There is also evidence showing that the Mycenaeans had settlements in Anatolia, with one being at Miletus, which seems to have replaced Minoan control, which the Hittite civilization refers to in its records. Let's now have a closer look at some of the aspects of the Mycenaeans that we can get somewhat of an idea of from the areas of evidence we spoke of earlier. The political structure of Mycenaean Greece is not fully understood just yet, as the Linear B tablets that would most likely give us a clearer picture are too fragmentary to draw any certain conclusions. Though with this period we still do have evidence that has been discovered and it is a matter of interpreting it to arrive at what seems most likely from the information that we do have. In the Iliad, there is a famous passage known as the Catalogue of Ships, where Homer lists all the regions of the Mycenaeans that travelled to Troy. Archaeologists have tried to locate these regions, and in a lot of cases they have discovered palace-type structures that appear to have exerted some form of control over a region, with Mycenae perhaps controlling the largest area. In the case of Mycenae, there are also two other citadels curiously close by, Tiryns and Medea. These two citadels will appear to have been under some form of control for trade and coastal influence from Mycenae, as it seems very unlikely that the three political centres could exist in such close proximity. The example with Mycenae seems to be typical though, on a smaller scale with most other regions. The region would usually have a palace structure with many other smaller sites that dated to around the same period. The palace seemed to act as a central point of administration for the region, with the smaller sites supporting the palace through trade, collection, or as in the case we just spoke with Mycenae, fortified centres that could help project influence further. Although there are many different regions with their own political control within Mycenaean Greece, it is unclear if there was a unified Mycenaean state with an overreaching ruling centre. Though the traditional stories told by the poets and evidence found in Egyptian and Hittite records at least point to a somewhat unified Mycenaean civilization when dealing with foreign affairs. We could perhaps think of this being a coalition of Mycenaean regions acting together under a chosen or allotted leader for a specific purpose. At the centre of these regions was the palace, which was a centre of power and administration. In most cases, the palace was built on a raised ground, rocky outcrop or an acropolis. These palaces were mostly surrounded by fortifications. Such as at Mycenae, the palace itself was created into a citadel while a smaller wall or series of fortifications protect the dwellings surrounding the palace. The materials that were used to construct the palaces range from mud brick, wood, stone, and with some limestone also present. The structures usually consisted of rubble foundations, a framework of wooden beams, then a superstructure made up of mud brick. Distinctive individual aspects can be found in each palace, but they all had essential elements that were common to all. The most obvious was the presence of a room known as a megaron, or a great hall, which tended to lay at the heart of the palace complex. The king's throne sat in the great hall where it would have been lavishly decorated to impress his power onto the visitors that would have been received in there. Surrounding the Megaron, there were a series of other rooms, corridors and courtyards that made up the rest of the palace. Also, there is evidence that some of the sections were at least two stories high due to the staircases found. Evidence also shows that the interiors of the palace walls and floors would have been decorated with colourful frescoes, which appear to have been learnt from the Minoans, but now with a distinctive Mycenaean style. As we said, the Megaron was set up to impress visitors and the palaces being the power and administrative centres of the region is where visitors and traders or traded goods would have travelled to. 
So let's have a look at the types of relations that were going on between the different regions and internationally. As the palace societies of the Mycenaeans reached their pinnacle, a level of trade coming in and going out would have been necessary to reach this point and then also to maintain it. It is difficult to determine, as with most topics about the Mycenaeans, to the extent they relied on imports and exports. At least different types of evidence can suggest what was likely and shows us who they were in contact with. This includes Mycenaean pottery found in different foreign lands, written sources, images on reliefs, and even wrecks of ships that were carrying goods. For trade to occur, a network of trade routes would need to be in place. The coastal sediments had access to the sea, where ships could engage in domestic and foreign trade. The settlements in the interior would have relied on a network of roads, which archaeologists have uncovered evidence of, to connect themselves to other settlements and coastal regions. The one civilization that we can see the Mycenaeans as being in contact with to the greatest extent was the Minoans, as we spoke a little about last episode. This was probably due to both civilizations being so close and projecting their influence in the same areas. As we have seen, the Minoans predated the Mycenaeans with the rise of their culture, and it was seen that the Mycenaeans were heavily influenced in art that came from the Minoans, though they would develop a distinctive Mycenaean style with what they had learnt. The Mycenaeans would also influence others, with their script of Linear B coming to replace the Minoans of Linear A on Crete. As we have spoken about, the Minoan civilization on Crete started to change around 1450 BC. It was becoming less Minoan and more Mycenaean. Though it has been difficult to determine if this was through waging of war or through more peaceful means. Let us start with what the Mycenaeans were importing and a couple of elements essential to any Bronze Age civilization, copper and tin. As we have covered before, these two metals are needed to create bronze. Copper deposits have been found to have been mined during this period in the silver mines at Lorien in the region of Attica. Scientific testing on Mycenaean bronze has shown that copper from here was used in many bronze items. Also, the island of Cyprus was an important source for copper, with much of the eastern Mediterranean having used Cyprian copper. Tin, on the other hand, was a much harder metal to come by, as no deposit existed in Greece so foreign trade would have been necessary. The most likely regions that it would have been imported from is the Far East with perhaps Afghanistan being the most likely source. There has also been evidence that mining in Iberia, modern day Spain and Portugal was taking place during the period of the Mycenaeans. Other items were also sought after, which were not native to Greece. These included lapis lazuli from Afghanistan, ivory and precious woods which were used in making furniture, their use documented in Linear B tablets. Gold and other precious metals were imported from Egypt and the East, while amber, highly sought after by the Mycenaean warriors for their necklaces, was obtained from trade routes stretching into the Baltic. So if these were what the Mycenaeans were seeking to bring into their region, what were they exporting to facilitate the trading partnerships? Probably one of the largest exports was Mycenaean pottery. This pottery was used as storage jars for transporting other goods, such as perfumed olive oil. Though some pottery was traded for the pottery itself, with large lively scenes of animals and people. Both types of pottery have been found in large numbers, on Cyprus, the Near East, and some in Egypt. Also, large concentrations of Mycenaean pottery have been found in Sicily, southeastern Italy, and even as far as the east coast of Spain. The Linear B tablets that have been deciphered only really refer to internal matters, but some have led to the belief that textiles were also an export the Mycenaeans dealt in. Texts from other civilizations such as the Hittites, Babylonians and Egyptians 
who were the big players in this period, show the Mycenaeans being involved in the trade networks these civilizations had in place, and olive oil often mentioned. Just to finish up on the subject of trade, let's have a look at a particular shipwreck that dates to around 1300 BC. It pretty much sums up the importing and exporting activities the Mycenaeans were taking place in, in one small snapshot. The Ulubaran wreck was found off the coast of Turkey, and it is thought to have been bound for the Aegean, with Mycenaean officials on board. Personal items that were found to be on the ship were two Mycenaean swords, two seals, spearheads, amber, glass beads and other items carried by individuals. The cargo that they were carrying had origins in a diverse range of locations, from the Aegean, Egypt, Cyprus, Mesopotamia and the Baltic. The cargo consisted of 10 tonnes of copper, a tonne of tin, Canaanite jars, glass, cypriot and other pottery. Other items such as ebony, ostrich eggs, ivory and even a scarab inscribed with the name of Nefertiti from Egypt was found. Many other items were also aboard and testing has been able to identify. Pomegranates and figs were being carried in large numbers. It appears that the ship was sailing port to port, picking up items and on selling others. Earlier in this episode and in our past ones, we have referred to Linear B, which was the language spoken by the Mycenaeans and found on tablets located in the ruins of their sites. The first time this language was encountered was during the excavations at Knossos by Arthur Evans in 1900, where he also uncovered another script, known as Linear A, that dated to an earlier period on Crete. In 1934, a man named Carl Bleegan uncovered the first evidence of Linear B on the Greek mainland at a site in Messenia while searching for the palace of King Nestor of Pylos, where he uncovered 600 tablets. This is one of the key pieces of evidence that is used to show that the Minoan civilization was supplanted by the Mycenaeans. The Linear B tablets remained undeciphered until the 1950s, when a young codebreaker from World War II named Michael Ventris correctly concluded that the script was of an old Greek dialect. Key in unlocking the text was his assumption that the groups of symbols found on the Linear B tablets at Knossos that did not exist on the tablets found on mainland Greece were place names on Crete. This then allowed him to narrow down the sounds associated to each symbol. Although the Linear B tablets can now be deciphered, a level of frustration still exists amongst historians, as the tablets thus far have only revealed administration lists. No poems or narratives have been found yet, and this has made it difficult to get a clear picture of Mycenaean culture. Although the majority of the Linear B tablets related to administrative matters, certain deities' names and places of worship have been found in some tablets. A whole pantheon of gods and goddesses emerge from the texts in much the same fashion that the Greek poems convey to us from the 8th century BC onwards. The tablets reveal early named versions of the gods that Homer and other poets would sing about, and that we know were worshipped from the archaic period into the classical period. What is unsure though is if these early versions fulfilled the same roles as the later named gods. Archaeological evidence in relation to Mycenaean religion comes from objects used in religious ceremonies, such as vessels used in pouring of libations, iconography found on vases, figures, seal stones. While sites uncovered by archaeologists point to the importance of religion for the Mycenaeans due to the potential access most of the populations would have had to the sites. The sites that the Mycenaeans are believed to have conducted religious ceremonies at have been found within the palaces themselves and also out in the regions from special religious centres and open-air shrines, giving access to the large population centres as well as to farmers and other rural population. 
So although we don't get any sort of picture of the belief system, we get a picture from the physical evidence that religious practice was an important and likely a central element in Mycenaean life. Another element the Mycenaeans seemed to hold in great importance, and would have most likely had religious elements tied to it, was warfare and the warrior. Much of what we are told about the Mycenaeans in traditional tales conveys the notion that these were people of a warrior society, or at least placed a great importance on military matters and the warrior. The archaeological evidence discovered at sites like Mycenae grave circles also point to the importance that was placed on the warrior, with the ornamental weapons and armour that was buried with them. The frescoes painted on the palace walls also pointed to a ruler trying to show off their military prowess to visitors and his own people, thus showing that military success was highly valued in Mycenaean society. One of the most obvious details in the frescoes that points out Mycenaean soldiers was the boar's tusk helmet. These seem to be highly valued and likely passed down through generations, as it was estimated that around 40 to 50 boars would need to have been killed to produce one helmet. A passage from the Iliad gives us a good description of the helmet, which has been supported by discoveries in tombs all through the Mycenaean period. Mariannes gave Odysseus a bow, a quiver and a sword, and put a cleverly made leather helmet on his head. On the inside there was a strong lining of interwoven straps, onto which a felt cap had been sewn in. The outside was cleverly adorned all around with rows of white tusks from a shiny toothed boar the tusks running in alternate directions in each row. Homer then continues on to describe how the original owner passed it on and then how in turn the new recipient would do the same. Molus, in his turn, gave it to his son Mariannes to wear, and now it was Odysseus's head that it served to protect. The armour and weapons mentioned earlier that were buried with the warriors were generally ornamental and were too brittle for use in war as they were made of sheet gold. It is unclear if these ornamental arms were worn in ceremonies while the warrior was still alive, or were only worn for the funeral. As well as these items, there has been a range of other weapons and armour that had a practical use that has also been found in many tombs. These range from many different varying forms of swords and daggers, and a range of spearheads and lighter javelin heads, which were all made of bronze. Another weapon of war that is associated with the Bronze Age civilizations was that of the chariot, and the Mycenaeans were no exception in its use. There have been many pictorial representations found of the use of the chariot in scenes of hunting and processions, with a number also showing its use in war. It is thought that the chariot was used in a manner similar to the Near Eastern civilizations, in mass formations, but then seems likely that towards the later part of the Mycenaean period, it was used as a transport for elites of the warrior class to deliver them onto the battlefield. The only narrative of battle itself that we have of the Mycenaeans is what is found in the Iliad. Though this poem does focus heavily on the chaos of the warrior class and the deeds of individuals. Though images on frescoes and pottery do suggest that it is likely that the main fighting force of the Mycenaeans was amassed foot infantry, like was depicted on the fresco found at Akateri on the modern day island of Santorini. The Mycenaean palaces and settlements also pointed to a society prepared for warfare due to the sites chosen to build on being on high rocky ground and typically protected by fortifications. The impression these palaces would have given to visitors as they approached would have been one of strength and power. Lastly, one other aspect to do with warfare from the Bronze Age that has been written about by poets and historians of the archaic and classical period is the practice of capturing women after a battle or during a raid. The whole reason for the Trojan War in the Iliad was due to Helen, Menelaus the king of Sparta's wife, being taken back to Troy by the Trojan prince, Paris. Within the Iliad, 
There is also references to Greeks taking women captive after raids around Troy. Herodotus also at the beginning of his work describes the reasons from tradition for the quarrels between Greeks and the East being down to an ongoing practice of the capture of women from each other's societies. Recently it has been shown that what we hear from the traditional accounts may well have been common practice, as sections of a number of Linear B tablets have used a word that has been associated with the word capture with the word woman. So as we have seen, it is pretty hard to try and form a narrative of the Mycenaeans due to the fragmentary evidence that is available. Though at least we can still get glimpses into certain aspects of the civilization, even if admittedly they are the best guesses based on the information at hand. Homer has made it possible to let our imaginations run wild with the events and people of the Bronze Age, with archaeology sometimes reconciling some of these aspects of the traditional tales. Hopefully what we have covered has given an understanding or clearer picture of the period that the later Greeks would look back on as a heroic age, as seen as founding many cities and family lines. A large reason that we are unable to form a clear narrative of the Mycenaeans is due to the fact that their civilization, like the Minoans, would disappear in a time of confusion and chaos. The bronze-clad warriors would survive in the Homeric poems and tales told by later generations. Though this collapse of the Mycenaeans wouldn't be the only great Bronze Age civilization to fall, the known world would be thrown into disorder, and many great civilizations of the past that the Mycenaeans were in contact with would disappear, in what seemed like overnight. This would lead to what is known in Greek history as the Dark Ages, whereas compared to the Bronze Age before it and the Archaic Age that came afterwards, very little evidence has emerged, which goes some way into explaining the reason we have such a disjointed view of the Bronze Age. In our next episode, we will look at the Mycenaeans' decline, along with the proposed theories to explain their demise. This period is also seen as the end of the Bronze Age in the region, and we will look at the broader picture as well involving the civilizations around the Mycenaeans in the Mediterranean and the Near East. The historian Eric Klein summed up this period in the title of his excellent book, 1177 BC, The Year Civilization Collapsed. So until next time, thank you for your support, I hope to see you for episode 5, Collapse of the Bronze Age.